0: Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at mathworks.com. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of a recent episode exploring the history of investors holding businesses accountable. And the dawn of the ESG, or Environmental Social Governance Movement. Produced
1: by the iLab at WBUR Boston. Hey folks, we're taking some time off from publishing our usual episodes during July. Call it the end of season one, call it summer vacay, call it Ben, Emery, Paul, and Josh continue to work their butts off on future amazing episodes, which will be coming soon. The good news is we'll be dropping some snacks, if you will, into the feed every Friday, so you won't tweet sad emoji faces at us. This week, we have an encore of one of our favorite episodes called Getting Home, with an update from the Redditor at the center of our story at the end. So don't go anywhere. Also, if you are looking for something new to listen to in between Endless Thread binge sessions, I highly recommend the show Welcome to LA. It's from the fine folks at KCRW and David Weinberg. Personal dream state stories about Los Angeles told wonderfully. Check it out. And stay with us for snacks and episode updates. New full episodes coming at you in August. Here's one of our favorites. We're on the Williamsburg Bridge, stuck in traffic.
2: <laughs> Going nowhere fast. Going nowhere fast.
1: Here I am, sitting in a car with my partner in podcasting crime, Emery Sievertson. We just talked to Shane Correiah for several hours.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He has so a, many hours. So many hours. We're sort yes. of giddy because we've just been through this emotionally intense experience of listening to the life story of this guy, Shane and we're still trying to wrap our heads around it. We found Shane on Reddit, and like so many of the stories you find on the internet, his story is almost unbelievable. Part of me still does not believe his story. That's how crazy it is to me. Shane's crazy story involves a grisly crime, Jehovah's Witnesses, abuse, escape, and a turtle who has lived through it all. And we know Shane's story is true, because he is super organized. He has this folder, and it has basically every important document that matters in his entire life story.
3: This was my survival pack. Uh, This letter-sized, like, accordion-style document holder. And, like, if there's ever a fire, I'm grabbing this. What's in here now, like, um, my medical immunizations, my passport, my ID, my high school working papers... Legal documents, um, charges and psych evaluations from the divorce, police records from both incidents with my dad, uh, more police reports, uh, articles from when I was working in public...
1: Shane's folder of stuff is like the only thing in his life story that has any level of order. The rest is chaos.
3: I was angry and pissed and sad and sad. I only had until morning when when school started for like some normalcy.
1: I'm Ben Brock Johnson. You are listening to Endless Thread, a show featuring stories found in the vast ecosystem of online communities called Reddit. We are finding all kinds of stories. We're going to listen to Redditors tell their stories. We're going to wade into the comments section. It's going to be great and weird and fun and hopefully enlightening. One does not simply walk into our show without saying how it is made. We are coming to you from WBUR, Boston's NPR station, and we're making this show with a little help from our friends at Reddit. Today's episode, Getting Home. Getting Home. Hey, Emery Sievertson, producer of Endless Thread. Hey, Ben. So we didn't set out to tell Shane's life story. We were just looking at a popular and controversial post in Reddit's NYC community. It was titled, Stop Giving Money to Panhandlers, Please.
2: Right. And that post was made by this guy.
4: When are we starting? Is it like now? My dad wanted to know like, if it would be live or not.
2: This is Josh Hoffman, known on Reddit as Sarah Mello. He's a college freshman, he grew up in New York City, and that has actually shaped how he thinks about this.
3: There was this man who was standing in the middle of the sidewalk in New York, and he was
4: screaming at the top of his lungs, I'm starving, help me. Why won't anyone help me? What the F is wrong with these people? I went up and I gave him some money and kept walking. And even after I was leaving, I could still
3: hear him just standing in the same place, continuing to shout that he's starving. Why won't anyone help him? And I'm beginning to think that he was gathering money for something else instead of food.
1: This question of whether to give money to people asking for money on the street, it's not surprising, but it's complex, right? Because even though most of us want to help, We're not sure if this is the way to do it.
2: Yeah, and there was a lot of debate on Josh's Reddit post. Shane weighed into that debate, and his comment stuck out to us because he was speaking from experience as someone who lived homeless in New York.
1: But when we called up Shane to learn more about his experience living homeless, we realized there was way more to his story. So we headed to New York to talk in person. Shane lives in Washington Heights, near the very top of Manhattan Island above Harlem. Near the A-Train. The A-Train is the longest train line in New York's subway system. It has some significance in Shane's life. We'll get to that. The 168th Street stop is closest to where Shane lives now. Hey, hey. how's it going? Shane. Thanks so much for having me.
2: Hi, Shane of Amory. So nice to meet you. Thank you. Thank
1: you. Thank you. Shane is 29 years old, short dark hair, clean shaven. He seems fit. His apartment is tidy. He lives with a couple of roommates and. Oh my what? God, have a
3: turtle. Who is yeah. this? Oh, uh, that's little dude. Little,
1: uh, little dude? dude?
3: Little dude. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I've had him since I was 14. No. Uh, yeah. Actually, fun fact: uh, when I was on the subway uh, a couple of nights, he was just in my pocket, buttoned up. What?
1: <laughs> After our little dude, the turtle introduction, Shane sits down to tell us his life story. His family is from Guyana. But he was born in the Bronx, where his family lived in a brownstone near the projects. He went to Catholic school, St. Jerome. He has two older brothers and an older sister. His oldest brother, Steve, moved out when he was pretty young. Something to do with Steve running with a bad crowd. I asked Shane how old his siblings are. I, you know, I still don't know that. Like,
3: um, so I wow. grew up as a Jehovah's Witness, and we don't, we didn't celebrate birthdays. Wow. Uh, so. I did
1: not know that about Jehovah's Witnesses.
3: Oh yeah, no birthdays, no holidays. Like, you know, wow. preach the word of God, do memorial service. That's about it. So no birthdays, uh, none of those kinds of benchmarks, which are like I'm really obsessed with dates in
1: terms of my catalogings. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but that one I don't know. The more you talk to Shane, the more you realize his organization is level expert. Even as everything else is kind of rough, starting with the divorce of his parents when he's about four years old. It's a bad one. And some of the bad blood between his parents doesn't go away.
3: And then like things just kind of ramped up and all of a sudden we weren't spending nights in the house anymore. We were spending nights in hotels and like my dad was upping his level of of harassment against my mom, okay, really messed up stuff, like her brakes would get tampered with, and just the sense of safety really deteriorated.
1: This seems like an objectively bad situation, but Shane's
3: take? Throughout the entire thing, you know, I'm like eight years old, and I'm just thinking, whoa, we get to spend a night in a hotel, (laughs) like, this is so cool. Um, So you were not really conscious of that?
1: No, I I didn't know what was going on at all, uh, which is kind of good. It's tough to tell without birthdays, but Shane thinks he was about 10 years old when he and his mom go to live with his sister and her new husband in Washington state. They're in a new unfamiliar place, a new church, or as the Jehovah's Witnesses call it, a kingdom hall. It's a lot of change all at once.
3: And that's where things got weird.
1: Shane and his mom and sister have escaped the emotional and physical abuse of his dad. But now they start to have family problems of their own. First, Shane's sister gets disfellowshipped or kicked out of the church for getting involved with a man who isn't her husband.
3: 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Do not be misled. Bad association spoils useful habits. Um, and, wow. Yeah, you, know,
1: you know your verse. Still know my verse. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't shake that part. <laughs> <laughs> How zealous were you? As a, a young Jehovah's Witness.
3: <laughs> I was pretty zealous, like um, kind of obnoxious about it. Like me and me and my elder brother talk about it sometimes. And he was like, I, I say it, too. I was like, God, if I knew me back then, I wouldn't want to be friends with me. <laughs> like, you know, um, I really well, we all don't want to be friends with ourselves as a,
1: as young teenagers. It's <laughs> <laughs> actually really comforting.
3: Um, no, but I
1: I really believed it, you know, like I believed it fully. But then, as Shane hits early adolescence, a truth starts to reveal itself. A truth that makes his life as a very observant Jehovah's Witness awkward. He starts to realize he's gay. At first, he thinks he'll fix it with God's help. He asks his mom about it. Actually, he asks her about witnessing to gay people. This is probably the most recognizable part of the religion, where Jehovah's Witnesses go out, preach the church's belief system to nonbelievers. Shane asks his mom if she witnesses to gay people. She says she can't stomach it. Witnessing was a huge part of my life, like going out door to door.
3: That was our Saturday activities (laughs) and Sunday. And so to like hear that
1: she couldn't even talk to a gay person (laughs) uh, scared me. As this and some of the other stress on the family come to a head, one day Shane has a kind of breakdown. He starts babbling. Someone calls an ambulance. One of the EMTs was like, hey, man, hey, man, be a man or, or like man up or something. And the
3: moment he said that, I just started freaking out. And they like had to take me to the hospital.
1: Shane gets discharged pretty quickly. Not much comes of that visit. But eventually he does something really unfortunate. One night my
3: my mom was home. She was scrapbooking uh, in the living room. And I saw her and I really wanted to tell her <laughs> something. I didn't know what, but something. Yeah um but i i didn't know what to say so you know i took a bunch of her pills from the bathroom and i went into my room and just started popping them yep <laughs> um and then i don't know what went through my mind but i just got really scared uh and and so i um so i went uh, into the living room and very calmly uh-huh. i was like mom
1: I just took a bunch of pills, and, yeah. Because Shane tells his mom what he's done, they get to the hospital in time. And shortly after this adolescent brush with death, Shane learns something that gives him hope. There are other gay people in the world
3: thank God for AOL and those free CDs. Cause like my mom was not going to pay for the internet. So like, <laughs> you know, she paid for phone, she would not pay for internet, but AOL kept me online.
1: Um, Why I, do you say thank God for that?
3: Be, because if it were not for access to an outside opinion, I would probably be a repressed Jehovah's Witness somewhere or, or dead. <laughs> um, because wow. of, yeah, um, you know, first it was like realizing that there were other people like me, mm. um, that there were even other gay Jehovah's Witnesses, like, wow, uh, was flooring, you know?
1: Just to say this out loud, mm-hmm. we're having a really serious conversation, and yeah. I respect that, but also there is nothing more redditory. Than to say the internet saved me. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Uh,
3: but it's true. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, no, totally. <laughs> I mean, the first thing that I, I remember seeing that was totally not Jehovah's Witness sanctioned uh-huh. was uh, Little Kim's How Many Licks music video. <laughs> <laughs> I've
2: been a lot of places, seen a lot of faces.
1: Uh-huh. Oh, hell, I even fuck with different races. Hey. A white dude.
3: And I was like, oh my God. Like,. Uh, <laughs> The world is really different. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, at some point... Great video. I I know all the words. Um, (laughs) I will not
1: sing them, but I know them. What Shane finds online brings him to this decision. It's time for some radical honesty.
3: I remember the night that I I came out to my mom. (laughs) She was in her room, and I, like, roll in the chair from my room and like put it in the doorway and I'm like so mom I, I have something that I want to tell you and I'm like trying to couch it as much as possible Yeah. and I tell her I'm attracted to men um, not that I'm gay not anything like that you know mm. I, I was actually hoping that she would like take me to the elders and like fix me wow. <laughs> like I couldn't do it myself and she looked at me and she, she said why is it my children
1: become my worst fears After she says this, Shane's mom goes to sleep, conversation over. And not just over that night, like, conversation over.
3: She no longer asked me about going to the Kingdom Hall. Uh, she no longer asked me about school. She she didn't really talk to me. Uh, and, and again, she's really, like, I just want to reaffirm. Yeah. She is really trying her best. She is really trying, but, like, everyone's got a line, you know?
1: Yeah. Um, she couldn't handle it. And by the way, that really messed up thing Shane's mom says when he comes out to her that night about all of her children becoming her worst fears, it's referencing this whole other part of Shane's family story that is nuts. While all of this stuff in his life is going on, while Shane is grappling with his sexuality, what it means when it comes to this intense religious life he's leading, there's this other thing that happens. Shane's sister gets arrested for murdering her mother-in-law, bludgeoning her to death with fireplace tongs. And this murder is just like a sidebar to Shane's story about living homeless in New York City. Right now, though? Uh, could I have a cigarette on the yeah. fire escape? Want a smoke like, break? Yeah, I <laughs> yeah, yeah, do, yeah, yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> uh, Shane needs a smoke break. Do
3: you guys want to join me? Do you want yeah. to? Sure, yeah. uh, let me grab a jacket. Do you guys need layers or anything? Can we take,
2: I'll just
1: put, pop my jacket. Yeah. We will get to that story after the break. So Shane Coria has taken us out onto his fire escape in Washington Heights, New York, and he goes through the story of his sister getting charged with the murder of her mother-in-law. It's a long, weird, confusing story, and it's noisy on the fire escape, so I'll summarize. Around the same time Shane is realizing he's gay and living in Washington State with his mom near to his estranged sister Sophia, Sophia and Shane's older brother Sean get picked up by the cops because Sophia's mother-in-law has been killed.
3: So, like, I've talked to my sister, and and everyone's got a different story, and and this is where I just kind of surrender
1: to the justice system. Okay. So, let's go to the justice system. A description of Sophia's case sort of written from the perspective of Sean, Shane's brother, says this. Sophia and Sean go to her mother-in-law's house with a plan to steal $10,000 that is supposedly hidden in the house. When they get there and start looking around, they hear a garage door open, and they realize the mother-in-law Is actually home. Sophia tells Sean to stay put. She goes down to the garage. And then Sean hears a scream. So he runs down to the garage and he sees someone standing over the mother in law's dead body holding fireplace tongs. The person holding the tongs has a stocking over their face. The person lifts the stocking. It's his sister. Sophia gets convicted of the murder. Sean is charged with assisting in the crime. But in exchange for testifying against Sophia, he gets just one year in prison. And then Sophia's conviction gets overturned, something about a jury member in the original trial being improperly dismissed. So the case heads back to court. But this time, Shane's brother Sean refuses to testify, saying he now thinks someone else committed the crime, not Sophia. Sophia gets exonerated. So, the question for Shane. Do you think she did it?
3: Uh, I don't know. I, I used to. I don't see her as the way that I read about her in, in all these articles. Uh Frankly, Sean, not the most dependable character. He would do anything to save his own skin. So I definitely don't trust his testimony at all. Okay. Um,
1: and his testimony is the only testimony that says she did it. That's right. And again, this murder happens right around the same time Shane is realizing he's gay. He's dealing with his mom, his church, oh yeah, and school. I
3: remember like going into the lunchroom and like this group of kids, like led by this one that I just really didn't like, is like coming toward me and the like the kid that I don't like is like, "So is it true that your sister killed someone?" And I like didn't have a response. I just like grabbed my shit and I like went to the library. And honestly, after that, I just kind of stopped going to school. Um, yeah. I'd always been a really good student up to that point, and then I just kind of shut down.
1: It sounds like you were going through some stuff, even though you didn't necessarily realize it at the time.
3: I think that's a fairly consistent theme. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, yeah. Imagine being 13 years old. Your mom's not talking to you, you're getting bullied at school, and to top it all off, your sister has been convicted of murder. What do you do with all that? Shane does the only thing he thinks he can do. He reaches out to the guy whose abuse sent him across the country in the first place. His dad.
3: And he's like, you know, you should just come to New York, you have a place to live. I was like, all right.
1: And this is a guy that you don't really know since you were four years old. <laughs> no, not at all. But like, he's uh, your only option in, in some ways. Yeah, absolutely.
3: The only things that I knew about my dad was like really bad stuff. Like my entire adolescence was spent ensuring that there would be no like... Contact. Yeah. And so I, my mom doesn't even take me
1: to the airport. By the way, this is around when Shane gets little dude his turtle, which is an interesting idea because he's had all of these bad experiences with family that have taught him to fend for himself. But he wants someone or something to take care of in the way people aren't really taking care of him. And he's not just taking care of little dude, he's also starting to be responsible for his own life in this way that you wouldn't expect. For instance, after a few months at his dad's, he's like, wait, I should probably be going to school.
3: I enroll in school and it was kind of like I got to reinvent myself. Like, I didn't have the uh, the censor of being a Jehovah's Witness anymore. And I also didn't have to, like, hate myself. Like, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses were out of my life now. And my dad, I did not have any sympathy for. So for him, like, I really didn't. I know I, I still mean this. I didn't really have much concern for his feelings. Yeah. So, you know, I told him that I was gay. And at first, he was super cool with it. He was like, you know, we will get through this together. Right. Um, But I was like, no, no, I'm like pretty, I'm okay with this now. (laughs) Like, uh, I'm gay. Um, I'm pretty
1: gay, dad. (laughs) Pretty gay. (laughs)
3: Super gay here, dad. Um, Very quickly after that, that compassion started fading away. Um, Why? I think he started realizing that I didn't want to change. Like suddenly, uh, one of the first transitions was like, I stopped being Shane. I was cocksucker or faggot or, like, that that was my name, (laughs) like, from 13 to 18.
1: This environment leads to some big fights between Shane and his dad. A few times the cops get called. Things generally escalate. Eventually, Shane's 18th birthday starts to loom. His dad is on one of his many visits to Guyana, where extended family still lives. But Shane gets the feeling that something's about to go down. And sure enough, Shane gets the news from family members that his dad is flying back, just in time for his birthday.
3: I go to school on my birthday, have a pretty normal day. I get home and I'm getting ready for like my a birthday dinner. Like I'm going to celebrate my birthday. Um, you know, my dad comes home and he's like, are you still gay? And I'm like getting ready to go to dinner. It's like, yeah, dad, I'm, I'm still gay, and I'm going out to dinner with my boyfriend. And so I go. My high school boyfriend at the time, you know, comes home with me. Uh, and I'm trying to open the door with my keys. They're not working. <laughs> and so, like, still trying, and nothing is happening. It's, like, midnight at this point. My stepsisters are in the room next to the door, and so I'm, like, banging on the the metal gate, trying to, like, get them to open it. And they,
1: like, text me, and they're like, George says we can't let you in. Locks changed. Shane is on the street as a high school senior. Shane goes to stay with his boyfriend and his boyfriend's mom. This is when he gets really organized, because Shane's boyfriend's place is a temporary solution.
3: And so the first month while I was like with my boyfriend was kind of just building up. It it was like the worst scavenger hunt. Like, uh, you just have to go from place to place and every place has different requirements. And you don't know which one's ultimately going to give you shelter. And... You, you know, I went through so many psychological evaluations and physicals and blood tests and, like, stuff.
1: Eventually, Shane finds a homeless shelter in Brooklyn called Independence Inn. And he gets in because he's got this folder, specifically a folder with the immunizations you need to be considered for a bed. Remember, Shane's doing this while he's still in high school. My
3: first night there, (laughs) there's a closet. I still have a little dude with me, so I'm putting him in the closet Uh, The bed is like made of some weird plastic that's all tore up underneath my pillow was a fork that had been like melded like the two outside tongs had been like pushed down to like create like a shiv. So I was
1: like, great, where the hell am I? Um, Wow. Yeah, so not fun. Shane gets a job. It's at a hair salon in Manhattan. Then one day he and his boyfriend have a really messy breakup fight. Shane's late getting back to Independence Inn, and he misses curfew. They're real strict about curfew. So I slept on the train.
3: (laughs) Um, Went to school, went to work, still got to earn that paycheck hourly. Um, You know, put little dude uh, in the teacher's sink. When I went to work, put him in the uh, employee's lounge sink. People would feed him, which was great. There was only like two weeks left of the semester. And it was kind of just like every night trying to figure out Like, where to go, what to do. And, you know, sometimes I'd, like, feel comfortable enough to tell my friends, like, hey, you know, I'm super close to where you are,
1: because I have an event there that's going on tonight. Do you mind if I crash at your place? Shane found solace in the things that were routine. His classes, for instance. But then he graduates. High school is officially over. That was when I actually got
3: really scared, because all of a sudden, my day had time in it that I
1: couldn't fill. Remember when I said the A-Train had a significance in Shane's life? Well, now, the A-Train is his bed. This is maybe his lowest point. 32 miles, stretching from the top of Manhattan through Brooklyn and out to far Rockaway, Queens. This stretch gives homeless Shane the best chance for almost two hours of uninterrupted sleep before he gets kicked off at the end of the line and he has to wait to get back on and head the other way. I just slept on the train until I needed to go to the first thing that I had to do.
3: And that also starts interfering with work because you don't want to be the dude with the turtle in your pocket who like ruined your coat because he used to shit all over it and like going to work um, in a rumpled suit because you have no place to put it. And like that was when I actually started to feel homeless. Um, and, and that's when I, I started telling my friends.
1: Shane has basically been locking up his feelings because the people who he's supposed to be open with, his mom, his dad, his siblings, aren't really there for him. But instead of totally falling apart, Shane becomes really organized. Let's go back to his folder.
3: you know Actually, when I went to one of the drop-in centers and I pulled this out, one of the case managers was like, oh, you're not going to be homeless long. Like, you know, you're, you've got this. And, and that, was, that was nice. Like, Did that feel good know, to that hear? Really, that felt really good to hear, you know, because there's not a guidebook for that shit. Like, yeah, so it felt nice.
1: It might feel counterintuitive that some homeless people are extremely self-reliant because it's easy to assume that the reason someone is on the street is that they can't get it together. But Shane had it together. And in a way, there was evidence all along how he came out to his mom how he enrolled himself in high school when he was back in New York. The case manager was right. He wouldn't be homeless for long. Eventually, Shane's drive for independence and his hourly paycheck get him his own little room in a friend's apartment. And this is where Shane's story takes yet another amazing turn. First, he puts himself through college. Then he keeps going. He finds a way to go to law school, and he gets a law degree because he wants to work in the justice system because it was the court and law enforcement that brought order to the chaos of Shane's life growing up, when it came to protecting him and his mom from his dad's abuse, for instance. Today, Shane works for the Bronx District Attorney's Office, the same office that, years ago, brought domestic violence charges against his dad. Shane is doing so well in life and work and housing that he's willing to make a really special trip with us.
3: Oh, that's,
1: that's it. I mean, that's gotta be 93 at minimum.
3: But that's the place I remember.
1: Shane takes us to that homeless shelter in Brooklyn, Independence Inn. He hasn't been back since he got kicked out.
3: If they'll let us in, I'd like to show you my old room. (laughs) Oh, what's the sign? Let's take a look. Is this it? Yeah, this is it. Um, This is where I was at Independence Inn. And I'm actually curious if it's still Independence Inn. Do you mind if
1: I... No, please do. Shane rings the bell. They used to have a security camera, though, unless that's it. He looks eager, but no one comes to the door. So he has to sit with the reality that this shelter, as solid a symbol of Shane's homeless experience as anything else, is something different now. I mean, honestly,
3: I don't really recognize anything outside of this building. (laughs) Like, this used to be a really bad neighborhood. Like. The Jewish neighborhood ended about two blocks that way and the walk here felt dangerous. And now it's like a beautiful tree
1: lined street with no trash. It's different. <laughs> In a way it almost feels like appropriate. It feels like uh like this feels like you now. Does that make sense? It does, but I took such a different
3: sense from it. Like, um like for me I kind of felt like sad seeing all this change. Yeah. Because it's like You know, it was hard enough to find this place. (laughs) Like, well, where do they go now, you know?
1: Shane's story isn't over. His ability to rely on himself and a strength of character that formed despite growing up in a broken family led him out of the woods, off the A train, and into his Washington Heights apartment, where he has now lived for six years. But Shane's not quite home yet. He's working on it. I've got some
3: low standards about home. <laughs> um, I mean, this is definitely home. It's safe. It's dependable. It's stable. I have little control dude over. has a yeah. lot of <laughs> little dude. You know his space. His living situation has upgraded as mine has. Like we went from like a tiny little plastic tank to now he's kind of decked out. Like you know, um, I've been able to do the basics of home. But what I'm starting to understand is also necessary for the concept of home is like people that you can rely on and trust and feel with, and I'm not good with that yet. So um, I'm learning how to be vulnerable with other people. (laughs) Uh, And I think that's when I'll really have a sense
1: of home. there's more in a minute.
0: Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. A recent episode explores the long tradition of investors influencing companies to do better.
4: If you even go back to the 1600s, the Dutch East Indies companies, you'd have ships that would disappear for three, four, or five years at a time. And there were mechanisms that were needed because investors would put money into these operations.
0: Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of the episode. Politics has never been stranger or more
2: online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.
1: So, Amory. Hey. Let's go back to this Reddit thread that started the whole episode, which is how we found Shane Karaya from this thread. This is the kind of thing that happens all the time when you and I are sifting through Reddit comments. Uh, Someone maybe responds with a totally different perspective than the original poster. And just like in Shane's case, you wouldn't necessarily know the depth of his experience from reading the comment itself. But do you want to read some of Shane's comment from that thread about giving money to panhandlers?
2: Sure. So Shane talks about New York City's 311 app, which a lot of cities have this. It's like a neighborhood services app where you can report things like potholes or graffiti. But in this case, Shane writes, the 311 app allows you to report a homeless person for a Department of Homeless Services team to go to the site the person is reported and offer services. There's research that multiple outreach efforts eventually result in services being accepted.
3: For me, when I had to start really sleeping outside and, like, accepting, like, this is where I have, that was the first time I felt scared. You know, if you're triaging the homeless population, the ones who don't really know how to even ask for help are the ones that I think need it the most. For people who actually go up to another person and ask them for money, I always state, you know, I don't carry cash because, it. and this might be its own form of of anger, but it's kind of like... It was so hard for me to ask for anything from anyone, let alone, never strangers. You know, I know that this will not be beneficial. Like I, I do not rather believe that this would be beneficial.
1: And by the way, something Shane mentioned and we should also mention, every homeless person's story is different. Part of Shane's feelings about what we should do also come from another thing he did when he got back on his feet. He worked for New York City's Department of Homeless Services. I
3: remember one of the first women that I met, I was like, hey, I just want to share with you that I was homeless, so I understand what it is that you're going through. And she was like, oh, so you've got two kids. (laughs) And I was like, nope.
1: Never mind. (sighs) Yeah,
3: exactly. That's when I became a lot more compassionate toward my story just being one of many.
1: Thanks for telling us your story. Thank you. All right, so we just listened back to our Getting Home episode, which came out back in January. But we actually talked to Shane for that episode last October. So when we did our first live Endless Thread show a couple of months ago, we wanted to check in. We asked Shane if he'd be willing to come to Boston to give us an update on how things were going seven months later. Here's an excerpt of that conversation. So, Shane, tell us what you do now and and where you live.
3: Um, So, right now, uh, not currently homeless, but still living near the A-Train. I am in Washington Heights uh, for the past eight years, and uh, I'm an attorney. I ended up working at the Bronx District Attorney's Office, this office had a lot of significance for me personally uh, for a few reasons. Um, one was when my mother was a victim of domestic violence, uh, this office was an office that prosecuted my father and you know essentially demonstrated to a person from Guyana uh, that in America women's rights matter and you can't just do whatever it is that you want and that helped bring an immediate sense of security. Um, and then m- much later on, much, much later on, Uh, When I went to live with my dad after my mother couldn't uh, maintain a relationship with me, um, this was also the office that prosecuted him when he had attacked me. Uh, And I actually got to work with the prosecutor uh, who was prosecuting my dad on creating, like, a program uh, for domestic violence victims. Um, So that's the job that I just left.
1: Yeah. And what's the new job?
3: Podcast uh, uh, so, host, no. No, no. Uh, uh, so the new job, um, part of the transition between uh, being a very pious Jehovah's Witness um, and coming to New York without having religion and also being gay uh, is that I didn't have a tremendous sense of Purpose, identity. Um, I didn't really have like a rock to grab onto. And I had like three siblings that were all doing their own stuff. I won't curse. And there was this organization. uh, It's called the Center for Court Innovation. Um, The spiel is that they are the public private partnership between the New York State Unified Court System and the Fund for the City of New York. Um, And they had a a program called the Youth Justice Board um, that when I was in high school and on the, like, verge of delinquency (laughs) like it helped hit me over to the right side of it Mm. Uh, and now uh, 14 years later I guess uh, now I get to go and work there um, in support of the organization
1: wow yeah that's awesome so
2: this will have to be the abridged version of this story obviously but to go from sleeping on the subway to then putting yourself through college and law school um, how did you do it?
3: <laughs> Denial. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, um, so the how is is uh, pretty straightforward. It was a lot of planning. Like, I'm a very meticulous planner. Um, almost like we're a task list or blinders and everything outside of that doesn't matter. You know, throughout this entire process, it was a matter of you need to get documents, you need to get your social security, you need to get your uh, driver's license, you want to go to college, you need to figure out ways to apply for TAP and Pell and get your override because you should have parents, so why don't you? Uh, it was all...
1: amazing to me to learn, Shane, just like how organized you had to be as a homeless person to get into a shelter.
3: Yeah, well, and that's the thing. Like. The... Getting all of those documents are kind of very focused things that you have to do in order to get out of your current situation. Uh, So for me, the way that I got out of it was by focusing on the thing that I had to do. And when the barrier between you and the thing that you want is so clear, at least that is something to aim for. Uh, And honestly, that was kind of just like operating on blinders until law school, because that was the target mark. So it, it kept me
1: focused. You've had such an intense life story, is everything that you've been through, has that made you stronger? I mean, I know people say that, but...
3: Uh, One of the ways that I've adapted is by sort of shutting off negative emotions and not not really having them. So Uh even in uh, trying to process it, I, I can only do it through like a literature review. <laughs> um, yeah, like, any of the, uh, like the podcast Fair. was great because like hearing a third per, like a third party like put my story together and around, I was like, "Oh, yeah, that, that makes sense." <laughs> um, so that, that's great. Um, you know, I, I guess I can uh, point to like two different themes. One was growing up as a Jehovah's Witness, which makes you no rudeness intended, but it makes you very headstrong and stubborn. Uh, which, you know, the more adversity you get, the more it means that you're doing the right thing. Um, yeah. Uh, however, there was also, like, an attempt at, like, ending my life in between being a Jehovah's Witness and coming to New York. So once you lose God, that kind of loses, too. Uh, so the thing that I would say kept me going when I came to New York and I no longer had faith or religion or some higher power to believe will make it all better um, was... Uh, Finding community, um, you know, maybe not in my family because they didn't accept me, uh, but you know, at the Center for Court Innovation, these amazingly compassionate adults who um, showed me that if I do work, there's a positive outcome, and that there are options outside. Like they gave me uh, hope that offered me control, and as long as I did what I was supposed to do, I could escape what I was in. So that kept me going.
2: What kind of relationship do you have with your family now? Like, Are you in touch with your parents? Are you in touch with your siblings?
3: Um, I mean, I, so I don't have a comparison basis, but I want to say that it's as uh, fluid as I think most people's families' relationships are. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's really shitty. Sometimes it's really, really shitty. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Right now, it's kind of uh, in flux. You know, we've since the entire thing. My mother and I, we didn't speak for eight years. From when she stopped talking to me after I told her I was gay, hmm. uh, she reached out to me when I was 22, and I would say that that was like the start of a an ascension relationship with my mom. Um, with my dad, it's always been a high level tolerance. Uh, and I would say that that continues to this day uh, with a diminishing level of return on patience. Um, <laughs> Fair. And uh, with my siblings, like you know, we've all seen the same shit from different perspectives. Um, so we're all trying to make sense of it in a way that doesn't hurt because we all have lives that we need to live. And so talking about things that hurt makes that life that you're living a lot harder. (laughs) Uh, So it's kind of like finding um, appropriate paces to process some things so that we can continue to live the lives that we have.
2: Do you feel like in seven months that you've found a a different sense of what home is? Do you feel like you've made further progress on this idea of getting home and finding whatever home is to you now?
3: (laughs) Um, I think I'm definitely making progress. <laughs> um, you know, like, uh, for instance, I, I continue dating throughout this entire process, and all of a sudden, there's a public record of some shit I would rather hide until the very end. <laughs> trying to experience ongoing vulnerability um, and trying to continue to share and be open as things are happening um, is still something I'm... I'm very much learning how to do uh, and trusting other people with that kind of stuff when it could still hurt you uh, is is a challenge. <laughs> uh, so I'm I'm working on it.
1: How's little dude?
3: <laughs> uh, he's good. His it's filter broke off. before I came here, so I'm waiting on a replacement. But um, <laughs> otherwise, it's going to be an arduous process to clean the tank. But it'll he'll be great in like a week. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, Shane, thank you so, so much for thanks a lot, being Shane. here, really sharing your story.
1: Hey, thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, make sure you're actually subscribed to our show on whatever podcast app you use. And write us a review on that app if you can. It helps other people find the show. And most importantly, tell your friends about us. We've released 25 episodes already, which is plenty for the Reddit or Endless Thread noob. Next Friday, we're going to be releasing a little experimental something we're calling Snack Time. What's that? Oh, I don't know. You'll have to listen to find out. Endless Thread is a production of WBUR, Boston's NPR station, in partnership with Reddit. Our show is a dream realized by Jessica Albert, who, when we ask if she likes the episode we've put together, she sometimes says...
0: WTF.
1: Iris Adler is our executive producer, and she makes sure our stories meet the bar of... Mildly interesting. Mix and in sound design by Paul Vikas and John Parati, who, when we're in the field recording, always say... Nature is fine. <laughs> Lit. Our web producer is Megan Kelly, who looks at our attempts at writing web copy and goes, Aw. Michael Pope is our advisor at Reddit, and whenever we try to have a serious conversation, he's all, You're a toddler. Our interns are James Lindbergh and Josh Luckins. Our theme music is by Squelcher. Thanks to Redditor Kryptonian Germ for our artwork this week. On Reddit, we are endless underscore thread. If you want to contribute art for an upcoming episode or give us a juicy story tip so we can tell it like we did today or even just say hey, you can hit us up there. Our show is produced by Josh Swartz, also my co host and producer, Emery Sievertson. I'm senior producer and host, Ben Brock Johnson. I'll let myself out.
0: Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes.
4: ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the balance scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balanced scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the Balanced Scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are gonna affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're gonna affect them in the short-term, mid-term, long-term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big inside of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, it, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while. And thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment.
0: Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at IBMS.bu.edu.